Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As a huge celebrity, I get offers to do interviews that dreary, regular journalists can only dream of. Recently, I was contacted by the representatives of Pennywise, the dancing clown, also known as It, from the Stephen King book and the film of that name. Pennywise is a very evil, mysterious, demonic entity, millions of years old. Now, let's hear some excerpts from that interview. I hope your journey to my remote location was not too difficult. It was uncomfortable. Me? You're saying I was uncomfortable? No, 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 I'm saying it, the the trip, was uncomfortable. But see, my name is It. Yeah, I, I get that now. It's confusing, I know. Wait, are you talking about you? You're confusing? Ask your first question. Okay, um, am I shorter than you expected me to be? Because a lot of people, fans, when they meet me, they say... I thought you'd be a little taller. Gee, I don't know. I never thought about it one way or another. That's no biggie. Let's um, let's try another tack. What's your favorite character I've ever done? Like in a comedy sketch? Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Well, I'm talking about, like, um, once I pretended to be a beaver. That was good. Yes, that's my favorite. The beaver one. See, now it feels like you're just saying that as... You know, a way of getting past it to the next question. Well, it's just that these questions are all about you. I thought you'd be more interested in me. For example, nobody's ever had the chance to ask me why why I devour children. Okay, why do you? Well, as a clown, I meet a lot of children, and they trust me at first. But then, when I become an evil clown, they get really scared. And people taste better when they're scared. They do? Actually, the best is a really, really terrified Reuben. You mean the grilled sandwich with the sauerkraut? No, Reuben was this really scared kid I ate in Maine. Oh, he was better than lobster. Well, I know my fans are wondering, what do I think of Pennywise the Clown? The answer? He's a guy who doesn't want any trouble, just lunch. So get ready for the nose before he eats it. And now, Sean Penn's urologist, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, the scene in the article where he goes to the bathroom is actually something I've lived through with him many, many times. Um, So, yes, today in the nose, towards the end of the nose, we will talk about Sean Penn's bizarre journalistic encounter with the uh, Mexican cartel leader known as El Chapo. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we're also going to talk about the release of the Oscar nominations this week and things that, I mean, they are sort of a way of, even though they're sort of essentially meaningless, they are a way of kind of measuring our own ideas about what's good, what's not, things that we cared about that didn't get uh, looked after during the nomination process. And, of course, there's this kind of, um, actually, one of the themes of today is going to be inability to learn, inability to make course corrections, because uh, after last year, the Oscars, I mean, they, they, the whole academy said they needed to do kind of a course 
correction on this whole race stuff and uh, have more diverse nominees, and it just didn't happen. So anyway, we'll talk about that. We're also going to bid uh, farewell uh, by talking about our favorite performances of his to Alan Rickman, who died this week. So that's the plan for the nose today. Uh, and joining us is Irene Papoulis uh, from Trinity College, where she is a professor, uh, and uh, also from the Trinity campus, but in a different capacity, uh, the uh, Ar- archangel of uh, Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley. And then making his debut on the nose is uh, Rich Holland, a principal design director for CoLab in Hartford. Uh, and actually, this is his second, I mean, after not having appeared on this show at all, he's appeared on the show twice this week because you were on our David Bowie show. So, so welcome back. You were such a huge hit. The fans demanded, so bring him back for the nose. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll start with the Oscar nominations, though. Um, so, um, you know, last year, James, there was this sort of idea, well, wow, you know, Selma got snubbed and, and all – 20 possible acting nominees. They were all white. Um, and and there are other artistic things to say about this selection process. But the Academy's ability, inability to correct this this year, I mean, they've got 20 white acting nominees again, is just amazing. And it, it just it's not as though there weren't things they could have gone to. Exactly. I mean, I think there were some really great films that were ignored. I mean, the, the top of my list would be Straight Outta Compton, which was a really a great film that um, in in so many ways. But, you know, this thing, there's a sort of tone deafness. It, people thought last year when they said, oh, you know, we need to pay attention to this because, uh, you know, it, it, it looks bad, basically, was what they were saying. <laughs> but the problem is that, that the the people who are in charge, it's like this club of, of, of mostly white males and uh, a few white females. But it, 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 there are sort of token black people in the system, but they're not people with power. They're not people who actually will start a conversation. And so I have this sort of feeling that in the in the places where people discuss who they're going to nominate, they're the same people. They're the, the same people as who were there before. And um, I, I don't think it's just um, – it, it, it isn't just that all they focus on is white people to nominate – but there's a there's a whole sort of systemic thing about the kind of films that they pick. And I think that the fact this year that all of these awards go to The Revenant or, or the nominations go to The Revenant, which is an interesting film, and I, I, I like Inyari too. But it, interestingly to me, Inyari too is somebody who's now sort of bought himself into Hollywood kind of thing in a way that makes him mainstream. And so... This film is a sort of classic sort of boy movie in a way, you know, that, 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 that it appeals to the white males in the, the studio bosses and so on. And so you have really a system that is not changed. It's still there. I'm not saying that the films nominated or the performances nominated aren't good, but they don't have a perception that they have a responsibility to reflect a wider sense of the world, what the diversity of the world of film is. And as somebody running a movie theater, I can, I could immediately tell them there's lots of possibilities. What about Concussion? What about Idris Elba? A Beast of No Nation, important films like that. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, it's something that this year was a perfect example where they could have paid attention and didn't. And it, it, I have to say it really annoys me. I think it's it's really something that devalues what the Oscars are. Yeah, because didn't they last year? I mean, it seems like we all decided last year that we wanted them to make a commitment uh, to be less white. But it, but right. maybe, you know, 
uh, clearly they didn't actually make that commitment. No, right? I, well, it's a question of real power. It's sort of like you know, um, uh, holding the banks responsible for a failure. You know that w what counts is not having somebody come and do a mea culpa and say, "Oh, you know, I'm really sorry." What counts is do they change their behavior? And of course, they didn't. And of course, they they get away with stuff, and then they do it again. And in a way, there's a parallel with the Oscars that they talked about change. It was all about image and optics, but did they do anything? No. Um, first of all, you know the, we mentioned all those. James mentioned a whole bunch of other ones. Am I the only person here who saw Creed? Anybody else here see, see Creed? No, nope. I am the only person here who saw Creed. I, you know, screw all that other stuff. Creed was like this amazing movie with a black director and a black star, and That's it right. was commercial. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I mean, if in fact what you really care about is commercial success, first of all, there's your future sitting out there, and it's this terrific movie. Anyway, that's my rant. Rich, what's your reaction to it? We should say that there's but a hashtag, Oscars So White. And one of the things that's fun about the Oscars is starting aggrieved hashtags and doing that. I mean, maybe we have to just think about the Oscars that way. I think we could uh, make that hashtag a little broader. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we need to take a look at Hollywood So White. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to nominate movies that really aren't being made um, as, uh, as the larger concern here? Um, yeah, so there there are a couple of movies uh, that that we can cite pretty pretty easily. Um, some of them I, I think uh, were uh, were thrown against the wall or fairly flawed. Um, a movie like uh, Straight Outta Compton with great performances, um, but when you take a look at the uh, the movie um, and and its turn as kind of almost a biopic. Um, uh, it didn't hold up as a movie as much as the performances held up. So um, where are those performers on this list? They're not present. Right, and, and in fact, the only nominee for Straight Outta Compton, the only major nominee, is the screenwriting team, mm -hmm. who turned out to be both white, uh, on, uh, the t uh, on The Daily Show this week. They showed the picture of them, and Trevor Noah said it looks more like Straight Outta Cornell. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of an amazing part of it, too. And I, I don't know, Irene, not to make you sort of, uh, you know, sort of do the whole double X chromosome thing, but I, I'm looking at the list even of best pictures. Big Short is an almost entirely male picture. Picture. I mean, they really, you know, they had to work to create for Marissa Tomei or anybody, you know, a halfway decent female role in there. Bridge of Spies, once again, basically no female roles. Uh, Brooklyn. One great female role. Mad Max, of course, was the feminization of the Mad Max franchise, so uh, they get some help there. The Martian, eh, a little bit of Jessica Chastain, a little bit of that, but The Revenant, as uh, uh, James said, kind of a boy movie. Room, a girl movie. Spotlight, kind of a boy movie. I mean, Rachel McAdams got a nomination out of this, but it's really mostly about a bunch of guys going after a story. So... Oscar, to Rich's point, maybe Oscar's so white is too narrow a way of condemning them. Yeah, but I think uh, I agree with that. I mean, and, and I, I, I do really, I've heard so much good stuff about Creed and, I, it, and Creed and Straight Outta Compton. I want to see those. I haven't seen those. Those are not the movies that I, the kinds of movies that I necessarily would go to see. And so I think it's, first of all, where was Carol in the nominations? Mm. Carol was so good. Um, but um, I think it's also just to pick up on what Rich said. You know, I think part of the problem is that the 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 so many of the sort of mainstream movies have all white characters, and why is that? You know, why why don't we see um, uh, interracial marriages? You know, m many more people of color as part of the thing. People of color in, uh, as the stars of those movies. You know, it's not as though the subject. You know, if the subject is some kind of 
quiet psychological drama, which is the kind of or 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 character character driven movie. I I don't want to see only white characters. I mean, I just think it's it's. Um, you're more likely to see that on television. You're um, much more likely to see that right. on television. Why don't you see that in the in the movies? And you know, and so that's just making me think. Why do we take the Oscar? What, you know, like who is this Academy? Why do we give them? So, why do they have so much power in the culture? You know, like is there anything that moviegoers can do to sort of. Well, reject they could, them. They, we can go to Cine Studio. <laughs> well, they could vote by going to movies, uh, other movies, if you like, or going to more diverse movies, certainly. But I don't think that you change the culture of Hollywood easily uh, in that uh, Hollywood has a white power structure that is based on investment and money. It's all about money. And so they uh, they sort of cover all the bases they can and they, they, they make these calculations. One of the curious calculations is how significant the black film-going audience is in terms of income that isn't reflected in making of the films. And that sort of suggests to me that there must be some really serious resistance amongst the people who run the studios. Well, we know a little, we know a little bit more about that from the Sony hack, too. Um, yes. There's one, uh, I think there's one email on the Sony hack where somebody's telling one of the Sony executives, yeah, Equalizer with Denzel, that was great, that was fine. Don't do that anymore. Because, um, and it's not because of the American audience. He, uh, they're saying because overseas sales, overseas rentals are such a big deal now, such a big way that studios make back their investment. And that it, th- this guy was claiming, I have no idea how true it is, that overseas audiences are, are less welcoming uh, of that kind of performance. What were you going to say? I interrupted you. Well, uh, I was going. I was going to take a look at um, the the relative demographic of of this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, if the if our de- demographic is now very heavily people of color, of color, um, I would suppose um, that uh, that our theater goers are going to be very heavily people of color, um, and so. Uh, with the exception of the argument that you were just making, Colin, mm-hmm. that uh, that we can deflect that by looking at uh, DVD sales overseas, um, it's hard to rationalize uh, this um, this approach uh, within our country for sure. Yeah, and it's I mean even a larger question once you start feeding in. The Latino question, too, because there are also – I mean, even Oscar Isaac. And I don't really know how Latino Oscar Isaac is, <laughs> but he's, like, born in Guatemala, right? So I mean, he's got to be sort of Latino. Uh, and his name is Oscar, too. You'd think that would help him get an Oscar nomination. Uh, but I, he gave this amazing supporting performance in Ex Machina, and he's not on the list either. And so to your point, yeah, if – you know, if the lesson of American politics is that the demographics are changing, that does not seem to be the lesson learned at the big production studios. Yeah. I'm curious to know if anybody else just had stuff that you, you know, not necessarily things that play into hashtag, hashtag Oscars so white, uh, but things that you loved that didn't get noticed or didn't get nominated or the, I mean, and to give you a moment to think about that, um, I'll mention a couple of mine. One of them is I really thought that Paul Dano or Dano, I never know how to say it, gave this really remarkable performance as Brian Wilson in his half of Love and Mercy. Uh, it's one of those films that comes out early in the year, and with the exception, exception of the Mad Max 
movie. It's kind of hard for these early year releases to get this same kind of visibility for Oscars. And I also thought this will be a strange thing, but some of us, I think, I think James, you were here for the show where we talked about this. I thought Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace was yeah. maybe the best acting I saw this year. I mean, I just yeah. never felt like I was watching an actor there. And once again, early. Early in the run, an obscure movie, the end of the tour, nobody really saw it. So, I mean, probably no chance. Well, there's also the issue of timing, too, that the Oscars, with rare exceptions, films that come out earlier in the year are sort of, you know, forgotten kind of thing by the public. But also there has to be a calculation amongst people in Hollywood that, well, you know, if you take things back to, you know, something about David Foster Wallace, they'll be saying, David, who? Who was that? What was that? And they, they, they won't even be aware of it. Um, I mean, I agree about the Paul Dano performance, for example, and that wasn't that, that, that early in the year. But if you look at the way the commercial drive behind the Oscars uh, has played out now, especially with the earlier, uh, in the past three or four years, they've had the Oscars earlier and the nominations coming out earlier, what this has meant is you have all of this crush of films that have sort of insider buzz that get released in December, November and December. And so it means that those are the things that are on people's minds. And I'm sure that that applies to some of the sort of outlying Oscar voters yeah. voting for nominations as well. And so you you have basically an unfair sort of uh, a, a skewing of the field. I wish there was some way that you could actually maybe uh, break up the year and somehow have these the, the, an ongoing sort of uh, the, the nomination process perhaps could be ongoing. And I don't think that would devalue things that came out at the end of the year, but it would keep in mind important films. But of course, you're driven also here in this in the business by investors who want to see return. And so the fact that Revenant gets, you know, all of these nominations is great for business. And it's coming in. Revenant has been the beneficiary of the sort of waning Star Wars, which has n now made screens available for the Revenant. And so it's very much driven by that commercial need. So it's very hard. I, I can't imagine persuading them that they should pay attention to the whole year. Yeah, that would be interesting. And if, if we're going to rearrange it, you know, we could change the voters, too. But um, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I would um, one movie that I saw that actually came out, I think it came out in the end of the year is Youth. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. that has famous actors in it. Um, mm -hmm. Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel and Paul Dano is in that also. Um, and Jane Fonda's in it, though I thought her part was terrible. That was the only part of the movie I didn't like. But I thought it was a beautiful, like to me, I'm not a Wes Anderson fan, even though I know Colin is. But mm -hmm. I feel like that movie was kind of, did you see it? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. It, that's kind of doing what Wes Anderson would aspire to do. Um, but it's doing oh, those it better are words. because to me, <laughs> to me, it just seemed, you know, because Wes Anderson loves these little, you know, because it takes place in a spa that's sort of like a like a gloomy health spa hotel kind of place in the Alps, and it's just a beautiful. The characters to me seem emotionally, um, emotionally real in a way that the Wes Anderson characters to me often seem like caricatures, uh, you know, say in Van Grand Budapest Hotel. You know, I didn't see anyone make the link between those two movies, but there were some references. I, I really did. And I thought it was a beautiful movie. It had a, like a touch of surrealism and just great performances, mm -hmm. except for Jane Fonda. And so, but it only, it got an Oscar, it got one uh, nomination for the song, the original song, because the, com the composer made an original song that sort of 
as part of it. I, I like what you say about emotional reality too, because you know that's what struck me about Carol, for example. Um, the whole of all of Carol, the writing, the 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 filmmaking, the performances, that had an edge, an yeah. emotional edge to it, to it that is relatively rare, and it's something that. Um, it often doesn't get well done in Hollywood. It's not a. It's it's not a great. And those, yeah. I mean, I, I read that article in the Times about how, as as Colin alluded to, the idea that it's the international audience, and it's, and it's not so much only that they want white actors. It's that they want explosions and yeah. you know all those like big budget, huge things. And the rapid, like, rapid no. they white actors. White actors <laughs> but do they really want that? Why do? They, who says they want it? Who knows? So, Rich, how, how about you? Were there like dar- darlings of yours that didn't get in? No, 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 not They're even. Can I tell you the truth? Yeah, this was the year for me of really not seeing movies other than with the kids. Right. So, um, well, I mean, so, so I'm happy see, that Minions didn't yeah. make it in. <laughs> you just didn't make it in. Yeah, yeah. I'm good with that. Um, I know people who think Inside Out should have been uh, in the Best Picture nominees. Not, I not agree with that. That's in my notes. Yeah. Uh, I'm disappointed that it just got listed on their mm-hmm. animation. It had tremendous heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautifully executed. Yeah. Uh, overall, great movie. Mm. And how about the? Do you think any of the performances from uh, Straight Outta Compton should have been nominated? Because they are not. You know, I personally, I have some difficulty um, assessing uh, performances mm-hmm. when I get caught up in the the film itself. Oh, so you actually still enjoy movies the way you're supposed to. You're not sitting there like I'm sitting there, like dissecting them. I'm sitting there with my little needles. Uh, that's so healthy. Um, I wish I could be that. All right, we, we should switch gears a little bit because, in fact, we are also saying a goodbye this week to uh, to Alan Rickman. Uh, and so I asked everybody, "What's your favorite Alan Rickman role?" Uh, and I so I know Rich's, I know Irene's, I don't know James's, but um, so well, Irene, you can. Why don't you go first? Yours, I think yours, yours is the one that most people would yeah, give. Yeah, mine is the one, which is Snape. Um, it's such a beautiful... Uh, yeah, this is Severus exa- Snape. In, in, Severus Snape in, in the, the Harry, Harry Potter, Potter movies. Um, and it, But it, it, it helps that it's for somebody who read the book first before they saw the movie. But even if you hadn't read the book, um, just the, the fact that he's you know, mean in a lot of the movies, but he has a, a sort of quiet... Um, power that is 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 so textured. It's not just a a bad guy. It's like just this very very complicated um, emotional reality that he you feel like he really feels things, even though he's very very rigid on the outside. And I just think it's beautiful. And so did my son when he was um, first exposed to that at a fairly young age. We can all talk about that a little bit too. But uh, and let me also throw out that uh, this might be a good uh, Twitter subject. So at WNPR Colin, your favorite Rickman performance and why. But that's one of the things that Rickman did really well, right? Was, I mean, if you were going to cast somebody, you had to leave you in a constant state of slight uncertainty about whether he was a genuine villain or an occasional ally or, I mean, you know, what's going on here. Like, that's who you'd call, right? I mean, um, he was that guy. He also said in a very, I saw one interview where he said, that Rowling's books were such a blueprint for what to do. I mean, he's a very humble guy in a lot of the interviews Mm -hmm. that he didn't really, he just said, you know, basically that you just read the book and it tells you how to play this role. Uh, Yeah, the role did itself, yeah. I think he's, the the thing is that the real person, Alan Rickman, was a manner, manner. Uh, It was his manner, his real self. You know, when you asked me what was my favorite performance, it, it was kind of like him. 
uh, like his real self in a way. It was kind of the opposite of what you were talking about in watching uh, Straight Outta Compton, Rich, where you were saying, you know, that you can enjoy the film without being aware. With any film with, Rich, uh, with, with, with Alan Rickman in, um, it, you, you would immediately recognize him by his exactly. voice, if nothing else. But in his real self, you had this sense of a person who didn't suffer fools gladly, for example, and had a way of using his voice inflection in a way, even in an interview, it came across. Um, but actually, if there was a favorite performance, I mean, I loved him in Galaxy Quest, of course, yes. which some people might might have seen. But um, the most recent film we showed at Sony Studio of his was A Little Chaos, where he played Louis XIV. Um, and I loved the nuances of that performance. He had a sort of very, uh, very complex sort of almost. Uh, it was uncharacteristic of him in a way that he was kind of drawn back. But I, he to me was always the ultimate character actor. Really, that he. Um, uh, there aren't many who are willing to be character actors yeah. like that. And that was such a pleasure to see somebody so skilled and so able to do that and to be evidently very satisfied with being that. I think also, I mean, I, I want to sort of second the, how many people here have seen Galaxy Quest? Me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no. Gal so Galaxy yeah. Quest, is, he's, and he plays, he's a character actor playing a character actor in a way, but he's playing yeah. this very angry British actor who, uh, as he's at the makeup mirror about to go to one of these just punishing sort of Star Trek kind of conventions, uh, is in the mirror saying, I played Richard III, and the other members of the cast go, five standing ovations. And they went, I got five standing ovations. And, and he's so furious <laughs> that, he, that what he's known for is this stupid science fiction thing that he's been in forever. And he's saying, because he has this catchphrase, he goes, I won't say it. I, I will not say it. I, when I go out there, I will not say it. Uh, and as he steps out there, there's a big thing of him on the screen saying, by Raptar's hammer, you shall be avenged. But then he makes a shift later on in the movie because the whole premise of Galaxy Quest, and this is not really a spoiler, is they wind up having to be the characters that, that everybody that they pretended to be. And, and he be, kind of becomes that guy. He says that, that line with genuine pathos because he means it. And, and, <laughs> and you get teary-eyed watching that. So, yeah, I, thought, I, you know, I, I second that emotion. So, now, Rich, you're going you're to tell us about a movie and about a yeah. performance that I hadn't seen. I actually looked up some clips of him in this uh, online because I've never seen the movie. Now, this is a wonderful little flick. It's uh, called Dogma, and uh, the role that he plays is uh, Metatron. Um, An angel. And, yeah, exactly. A, a, a rather dark angel. And um, he plays it over the top. <laughs> and um, and uh, for all of the sort of mannered performances that you see Rickman do elsewhere, uh, it's still Rickman. He's still being him, but he cranks up the volume uh, in the way the entire movie tends to crank up the volume. And um, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, Affleck Damon movies, and um, it's absolutely worth seeing if you haven't it, seen it yet. It's a Kevin Smith movie too, right? Yes. I mean, with, yeah, yeah. That's a great choice. Um, yeah, and I, I did I watch a clip, a clip of him when he's just come into the apartment of a woman. Oh, that's uh, hilarious. And, and she sprays him with something and he's furious. Yeah, she, uh, she hoses him with a fire hydrant. Yeah, with a fire, um, extinguisher fire extinguisher or with a chemical spray yeah. or something. He's 
furious. He's an angel, and he's absolutely yeah. – he's like the most pissed-off angel yeah. you've ever seen in your life. Nancy H. is tweeting Sense and Sensibility, uh, another favorite one. Someone else is tw- tweeting Weird One, but my favorite is conniving, sneering Emmon de, Val- de Valera, played in Neil Jordan's Michael Collins. Oh, wow, yeah. I'd forgotten he was even oh, in that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we got another Galaxy tw- uh, Quest tweet. Well, I have to quickly give my brief for the, his first movie role ever. He had been noticed on stage in uh, Dangerous Liaisons, and his Valmont was so great that uh, John Frankenthaler, I think, was the director of the upcoming first ever Die Hard movie and said that. That's going to be my Hans Gruber. And so, and Alan Rickman is Hans Gruber. I mean, uh, there's a writer named Alan Adam Sternberg uh, writing for Vulture in New York Magazine who says what I think, which is that not only is this an incredible performance, it actually changed the thinking of big-budget Hollywood movies about villains, that in, on occasion they had to be good. They had to be good actors who could, you know, they, they couldn't just sit there petting a white cat or something, and that they really, they had to be able to even take some of the boilerplate dialogue they had and elevate it. Um, and he's so good, you know, and he's got these lines that, they're not the greatest lines in the world. You know, the guy, when Mr. Takamura or whatever, Takagi gets uh, shot, he comes back and he says to the hostages, Mr. Takagi won't be joining us again for the rest of his life, or whatever, or wh- whatever it is. And it's not a great line, but somehow or other, he just kills it, you know, and by the end of this movie, you just feel like you've been seeing this bravura performance by this guy that nobody had ever seen. And I think from then on, there's a little bit more. It's not that every villain role gets cast better and stuff like that, but villains have gotten better, you know, and I think he kind of said, this is what you could do with something like that. You know, you could really, really challenge even the superstar you're playing opposite. Um, All right, I'm being told we have to take a break, but bye-bye, Alan. We loved you. Even in stupid movies, we loved you. We loved you as the sheriff of Nottingham, and that wasn't a very good movie. Life is what kills you in the end. And I can cry, but you won't be there to be sorry. You were made of life. Well, I like that Latin trumpet because it's like the soundtrack for Sean Penn's uh, excursion down to Mexico uh, to meet El Chapo. So, you know, we were going to talk about this on Monday. We had it all planned. We were starting to talk about guests and stuff like that. And then suddenly David Bowie died and we decided to do, do the whole show about that instead. But it's been sitting around ever since. And I think, you know, it's a story that people were talking about a lot last weekend. And then so many things happened this week that uh, it almost slipped off the radar screen. But um, so we wanted to come back to it because we think – there's some uh, interesting aspects to this. This is uh, uh, Sean Penn, who was, uh, through a curious set of contacts, uh, had the opportunity to go and speak to the Sinaloa uh, cartel capo, Joaquin Guzman Loera, uh, otherwise known as El Chapo. Uh, and so this turned into an article in Rolling Stone magazine, the Rolling Stone magazine article, and the capture, the third capture uh, by the authorities of El Chapo came pretty much at the same time. Uh, And there's so many layers to this. We could do an entire one-hour show of it. There's so many things going on here, and I barely know where to start. But, but Rich, maybe uh, we can just begin by talking about, like, is this – I mean, we all read the Rolling Stone article. Is this journalism? I mean, what is this? <laughs> See, that's my that is my big question. Is that uh, it didn't strike me as journalism. It struck me as um, so. I'm taking a look at the makeup of the folks in this room. Um, uh, 
you do radio, you're working uh, in literature, you work in films, and I work in communications, right? So in a certain uh, in a certain way, we're all sort of hovering around a similar space mm -hmm. uh, occupationally. Um, I'm taking a look at this, and it felt manipulative, and it felt like a massive piece of propaganda. Um, it's manipulative. Well, it seemed as though he started out with a, with a conclusion that he was aiming for. Um, I could pick up Penn's agenda um, throughout the piece. Um, and he has a point of view, and, and it's not one that I disagree with, um, but, it's, uh, but it's very clear that, um, that this war on drugs is, uh, is, uh, is a fool's errand, um, that, uh, that it's creating more problems uh, than, it's, than it could ever dream of resolving. And um, and that we are somehow all implicit in uh, in the problem. Rich, I thought he had another agenda too, or mm -hmm. another way that everything that happened in the piece was built into his understanding of what it was going to be, and that was that yeah. he was going to, in some way, be the successor to Hunter S. Thompson. That this was going to be Gonzo journalism, and as such, it was going to focus a lot on his mood and state of mind, his the writer's mm -hmm. mood and state of mind, and that he was going to kind of bypass conventional thinking about stuff. That that's what Thompson Thompson at his best could bypass conventional thinking about stuff in a way that really did grab you by the lapels and say whoa, hold on, I never really thought about it that way. Maybe that's something that deserves my contempt as opposed to my admiration. Thank you, Hunter S. Thompson. But the problem is you've got to have a whole bunch of other intellectual equipment to do that. Sure, yeah, and, and that's kind of what my concern was. Um, so he tracks us through his journey, um, and that journey had very little to do with, uh, with any experience of, of El Chapo until you get down to the last, you know, what was it, about 1 15th of the, of the narrative. Also appearing in this piece, El Chapo. Exactly. And those questions, by and large, could be summed up with, does your mom like you? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that, to me, feels sort of, I don't think that he gave a tremendous amount of consideration uh, to what this interview was about and what it could produce. Um, and uh, the questions seem to be set up to be uh, to be um, a PR campaign for for El Chapo, which is the way it, it reads. It reads as you know, I'm a I'm a decent guy. You know, I I say God a lot, and you know, and God <laughs> wanted me to get out of prison. And uh, God's making sure that I don't get killed on a daily basis. Which, by the way, was, would have been a great question for Sean Penn to ask. I kept waiting for him to ask that question. Are you a religious man? I mean, he keeps talking about God. I mean, I, I think it was simpler than that. I think it was ego meets ego, and mine is bigger <laughs> than yours. <laughs> you know, it, it just really is not – I mean, first of all, you're talking about uh, – I mean, Sean Penn's place uh, – the, the Attempt to co the the comparison between him and Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, you're talking about. I totally agree about you. You've got to, if you're going to do something like that, if you're going to do that sort of Gonzo journalism, you've got to have the intellectual heft to yeah. be able to see what's the illusion and what's the reality. Yeah. And Sean Penn totally missed the reality yeah. and completely was absorbed in his own mm -hmm. illusion. And it, the illusion happened to be with an incredibly vicious man who's lopped the heads off dozens of people. He's the person who's, you know, behind the most incredible carnage and destruction and the exploitation of young girls. I mean, the list is incredible. And to sort of give him uh, this 
opportunity, if you like, to be able to be uh, to, to expose his ego, even though it was mostly about Sean Penn. I just thought that it was really intellectually dishonest from start to but, finish. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that um, in, in light of uh, the conversation that we were just having about movies and characters that are, you know, like so an Alan Rickman character who's an, who's a villain, but he's got an emotional depth underneath it, you know. In a way, Sean Penn was kind of um, was was kind of making the whole thing into a movie, you know, like and with himself as the hero. Like, I'm going to go find this hero and I'm going to find his humanity, you know. I, so I felt like for me, that was that was what I thought uh, was also one of his agendas, which is, uh, uh, you know, whether whether we agree with it or not, mm. he was trying to find the humanity in the character. And Which, isn't that kind of what happened? Would, would happen in a movie? Yeah. As opposed to looking at... The, I agree that he was wrong, but anyway, well, that's go ahead. the That's the exact nexus of the intellectual dishonesty to me, yeah. is to somehow see that, that uh, his mission was somehow to find this humanity in this person who actually is a real villain, not a cartoon right. villain, no, that's not what, a yeah, movie right. villain. Right. So that's what I'm saying. And uh, yeah. yeah, and and I think, but and I would all even take another th- another reason why I feel uh, um, some sympathy for him is well, first of all, it's, a, it's sort of like there's something so American about that, like having his own agenda, going out into the world, a world that he doesn't know, and thinking he completely understands it. You know, there's something about the sort of naive American going abroad and looking for some kind, you know, looking for a, a reflection of his own reality. I, I would have honored that if he um, if he went down that journey uh, with that with that hubris and yeah. and ended up with a piece of truth about himself at the very least, you know, yeah. and one of those mm-hmm. truths that he echoed, but didn't that he that he kind of skirted around was now that I'm here. I am terrified, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so how far am I really going to push this dude to to uh, to uh, give me the truth? How much am I really going to challenge him at all here and feel like I could walk out of this scenario? And the answer is not much. Not at all. Right. <laughs> not in, in, at a, all. in a way, I did kind of connect it to uh, a movie I mentioned in the first segment, The End of the Tour, which is all about this interview. Right. It's about uh, this guy coming to interview David Foster Wallace, and it's about the sort of Janet Malcolm cat and mouse game between interviewer and subject. Except that David. Foster Wallace doesn't have like 80 guys with machine guns. I mean, that would, <laughs> that would change Jesse Eisenberg's role in this movie a lot. You know, um, Irene, um, I, I've now read so many different things that I don't remember what I've read in the actual piece and what I've read in other places, mm-hmm. especially the ex- uh, exceptional Francisco Goldman uh, article in The New Yorker that you guided us to. But somewhere in there, it, it sank in with me that, um, and it's one of the almost comic ironies of this piece, is that El Chapo didn't want to meet Sean Penn. He didn't even really know who Sean Penn was. He wanted to meet this other person, this (laughs) Mexican uh, starlet named Kate Del Castillo. That's the only reason he was doing this, right? Yeah, that apparently was the only reason. It's like, who's this guy, Sean Penn? Yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) You know, bring him along. But, um, yeah, that's true. And so that's a whole other, the text that he was sending her and everything. Um, and her role in it, I think, is kind of interesting. What was her motivation like exactly? I wasn't quite entirely sure about that. But I, I also just um, not to defend Sean Penn because I think that it's 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 horrible and it's, and you know even down to the fact that there were two beds and a couch and the big guy there was a he's in the he's in the he's in the room. There's a small couch and a big bed, yeah. and there's a really tall guy and he's not as tall. And he said, but he looks at the small couch that's too small for him, and he says, well, there's no way I was going to sleep on that couch. How could he say that? He wanted to take the he wanted to take the king size bed, and he admits that you know not maybe not revealing how absurd that is. That, 
But, well, well but, not only that, but I mean that particular scenario and all of its Goldilocks complexities is parsed with considerably more care than any of the moral yeah, or ethical questions. <laughs> yeah, right. That that was vivid. Whereas the the seven hours that they spent sitting outside by the picnic table, well, they just kind of went by. But um, it's like the, an the, ego checkmate while all of this, this these people are dying, and the the yeah. Mexican uh, government is totally corrupted by this. And uh, I mean, everything is going to hell behind this ridiculous game. Yeah, but I had to say one thing too, though, because I think so. Sean Penn's father was. Um, I don't know, political in a way that maybe he, I don't know that much. I didn't read that much up on his father. But so we know that he had, maybe he had, he was one of those guys in Trumbo and he was, um, you know, before the House Un-American Committee, uh, he refused to to name names and everything. So I imagine, so that's where my, you know, anyway, Sean Penn says, as an American citizen, this is a quote, I'm drawn to explore what may be inconsistent with the portrayals our government and media brand upon their declared enemies. Are we, the American public, not indeed complic- complicit in what we demonize? So he's trying to he's trying to make the case that we're doing something wrong. Like the drug, like as mm-hmm. as Rich was saying in the beginning, I think that is his agenda, and I, in some way, have to admire it. Even though I think he's completely naive, he completely fails at what he's doing, and all that. There's a point that he believes in, in some kind of naive way, that there's something wrong with our country. And I want to I want to expose it, and I think he's right about that. And I, so I, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But I think that you have to be in a situation where you go after the right things. Right. right. I mean, if there's That's something so wrong with our country, so go talk to Bernie Sanders about it. I mean, <laughs> this is a strange person to be having the conversation with about what's wrong about our country. <laughs> it's kind of my, that's that's the point I was going to make. Yeah. That um, we can talk about complicity, but we can't talk about complicity without talking about proportionality as well. Um, this guy is just. He's dark and evil, (laughs) you know? I mean, we might screw up with the intention of wanting to do right. Um, That's entirely different from uh, a guy who is stating that, um, well, I'm not killing people because I'm angry. I'm killing them because it makes good business sense. Um, There there is a a line of darkness that's running through that that um, that, that he's missing. And I mean, you could certainly focus and say, well, you know, you you could focus on the role that we play in creating people like El Chapo because of our insatiable demand for drugs. That's a conversation to have. But certainly when when the evil has been created, then that's a different story. You, d- you don't glorify the, the evil in order to make that exactly. point. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, he should go after the academy and say, "Why is the academy <laughs> so white?" You know, well, if he that's, wants to have a that's, that's something that's yeah. a little bit more in a scale that he can deal with. Yeah. yeah. No, I loved you know when he's asking these, he gets his little bit of a Q and A, the part where he's really not even there uh, because he gets his little Q and A, and he keeps asking El Chapo questions like, "But you know, what would you change?" And El Chapo keeps going, "I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> he's really good right it's now." Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's talking to the head of Goldman Sachs. Asking, you know, what would you change? Well, we don't want to change anything. Everything's great. We just we can rig the game any way we want to do it. And so I, it's, he's he's not talking to a change agent, and he doesn't seem to know that. Um, well, he thinks he's the one. And the other yeah. thing that, that I just quickly have to say is that um, I, I said at the beginning one of the themes today is inability to change course. Mm-hmm. You have to say that about Rolling Stone too. They yes. had this bad year totally. with with the Virginia rape thing. This is how they're coming back. Yeah. You know, with this essentially unedited, unthought about unvetted uh, piece. And, and it, it contains a major journalistic violation, too, in allowing El Chapo to pass on the article, right. apparently, right. To, uh, which, which if you're trying to rebuild your, your journalism, 
reputation, that's not exactly going to help. He did yeah. demand uh, the chance to review the Fleetwood Mac reissue of Tusk, and the <laughs> Rolling Stones said, no, no, we're holding firm there. You can't review albums for us. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back with some recommendations. Potato chips are really addictive, too, but the Cape Cod cartel people don't have to live in a remote, undisclosed location guarded by men with machine guns. What's that? I'm being told that actually they do. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Sarah Flaherty and Amanda Gallagher. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jason Siegel. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff's interview with Voldemort, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Monday will be special Martin Luther King Day programming, and then on Tuesday, Colin interviews a woman who marched with King. And now, back to Colin. We discovered this woman. Uh, she was in. She's in a kind of a rehab and convalescent facility in Old Saybrook, and we got a tip from somebody saying, you know, she actually has these un- unbelievable stories from the March Against Fear in 1966 in Mississippi, and to marching with King in Georgia and being with the family uh, the night after the assassination. Uh, So we went down there. Betsy and I went down there yesterday and recorded this interview. And it really is. I'm glad we recorded it because it's a story that should be preserved. All right. So we're going to make some recommendations here. Um, Irene Papoulos, you can go first. Okay. So in the line of um, actors and actresses of color, I want to endorse Issa Rae. Uh, She's a young woman who has a... Um, podcast online called The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl in which she acts these little skits out that are just hilarious for anyone and anyone who has ever felt awkward can relate to a lot of the scenarios that she has and she's going to have a a show on HBO coming up this year Um, and I think she's just a delightful actress and and good to watch. Yeah, we actually talked to about her that night with Richard Plepler that you were there the HBO night. Yeah, yeah. he talked about her. All right, Uh, great, great endorsement. Uh, James, what have you got? Um, Well, amidst the redolent tide of racism and bigotry on the political scene, I have a couple of book suggestions which are really uh, amazing to me. One is Dark Money by Jane Mayer, and it's the story of not just the Koch brothers but their father and the family, and it is astounding to read exactly how long and how determinedly they've been funding reactionary causes and exactly the kind of thing that's spewing out at the moment. And the other book is a just an absolutely thrilling book to me. It's called The Notorious RBG, that being uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice. And um, it's by Irene Carmen Car- uh, and Shana Kniznik. Um, it's an amazing book. It just makes you understand how important it is to have people with real integrity and a real understanding of ordinary people's lives. Um, uh, I think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an amazing person, uh, somebody I admire very much, but this book is really astonishing. The Notorious RBG. Rich Holland, what have you got for us? I have a, uh, a book of poetry uh, that's not really poetry. They're more sort of uh, super micro fiction. Um, it's called uh, More Trouble with the Obvious uh, by, um, by a guy called Michael Van Volgen. 
I checked it on my way in today. It is available on Amazon. Fifty-four cents for a hard copy. <laughs> um, so go get it. You can't go wrong. More trouble uh, with the obvious. All right. Uh, this sounds like something that Greg Hill is already going to know about. All right. I want to first of all endorse in general the idea of catching up with some of the Oscar releases, not because the Oscars are important, but because it's a, sort of a good way to motivate yourself, right? I always try to make sure I've seen all the best picture nominees, and so that way you make sure you go to the movies. And specifically, uh, I want to uh, recommend using James's theater and some of the other independent theaters around the state is a really good way to do that. Uh, check James's schedule right now, Trinity Cine Studio. Some of the bookings are a little perilous because sometimes the big guys come back in and try to muscle one of the Oscar nominees away. But for now, there's a bunch of films that you might have missed, missed like The Danish Girl or Room or things like that that are on this um, list for Trinity Cine Studio. And then across town at Real Artways, uh, they've got Oscar-nominated Mustang uh, that starts, I think, today. Uh, and uh, Oscar-nominated Boy and the World, which is an animated feature. Nominated, it's a Brazilian animated feature in the Best Animated Feature category. And then at the end of the month, as they always do, they'll be screening all the nominated short films. Uh, and so, anyway, I mean, wherever you go, whether it's Trinity Cine Studio or Real Artways or uh, other theaters around the state, Bantam's great, Madison's great, uh, go to some of these independent theaters and see some of these movies. So on Oscar night, you'll feel like you know stuff. And meanwhile, you will have artificially motivated yourself to go and see these things. Now, I also need to talk to you about uh, what you're going to do on Oscar night. That's Sunday, February 28th. Uh, years and years ago, Peter Shapiro and I started an Oscar night party in Hartford uh, at that time to benefit the um, there was no AIDS organization <laughs> so long ago. There was no AIDS organization in Hartford, so we just did it to benefit the shelters that actually did take AIDS patients at the time. It's gotten a lot bigger and much smarter uh, people than me and Peter have taken over. Uh, AIDS Connecticut now uh, presents what they call the Red Carpet Experience uh, on Sunday night, February 28th, at the Spotlight Theaters uh, in Hartford. And anybody can go. You have to go on their website, which is AIDS hyphen Connecticut.org or AIDS, AIDS hyphen CT.org and look for that red carpet experience and order your tickets and stuff. But the tickets are quite affordable. Your basic ticket is, uh, I think, 50 bucks and you get all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's food and swag bags and stuff like that. It's, and you can dress up. People do. People dress up either as characters from their favorite movie of the year or just do the tuxedo and, uh, and or gown thing. I want to be Carol. You want to be Carol? Yeah. <laughs> I think, you, well, you know, I mean, stake it out right now. Start shopping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to be the Danish girl. Yeah, right. So, see, people are already picking their costumes. But it's, re it's really for a great charity, do really a great thing, and we're so happy that it's been kept going for all, all these years. So um, please think about going there, and as I say, go to James's Theater, go to Real Artways, go and see some of these films. You'll feel so much more in the know. Thanks so much to Irene Papoulis, to James Hanley, and to Rich Holland. We'll be back on Tuesday with the story of Prudence Allen. Talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that and talk about everything as a matter of fact oh yeah talk about Torrington, Vernon Danbury, Waterbury Oliveberry, Woodbury getting on New Britain Vernon, I already said that one Avon, Farmington yeah 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 I don't blame Sean Penn for a second for what he did. After breaking up with Charlize Theron, your natural rebound is going to be El Chapo.